Would you join with me in prayer as we turn our attention to God's Word together this morning? Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come now to your Word as part of our shared worship together. And we begin today to explore Uh, a subject and a topic that is uh, a challenge for us. It's a challenge for me, Lord, in handling your word uh, to be biblical in what we share together. It's a challenge, Lord, uh, because we want to hear correctly uh, what is being said. I pray, Father, for myself that in this message today and in the ones to follow, Lord, that uh, you would help me to be sensitive uh, to the needs of this flock, to those who will be in the hearing of this word. Uh, I pray, Lord, recognizing my own uh, weakness and inadequacy but yet, Lord, recognizing that you are sufficient. And so, Lord, I commit myself to you, and uh, I would pray that we commit this series of messages to you as we look at uh, this uh, theme of suffering, uh, both today and in the weeks to come. May the Holy Spirit help us and enable us, Lord, to learn from you in these days and through your word. And Father, we will give you our worship and our thanks and our praise, and we trust that our, um, and we pray that our faith will deepen uh, as we look to you. For Father, we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. An an age-old question that has uh, gripped humanity is this. Why is there suffering? It's a difficult and perplexing question because the answer is not easy. It's not possible to answer this question at all. One of the factors which makes this uh, a universal question uh, is that everyone encounters suffering to a greater or lesser degree. No one uh, is immune or goes untouched by pain, hardship, and troubles of every sort and every kind. It's universal. In fact, our key verse, and I will have a key verse uh, for each one of these messages, not being the only verse, it may be a a fitting summary, it may be a good starting point, it may be a good ending point, but our key verse uh, for today at least is Job 5 and verse 7, which states, yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. And maybe you can identify with that and say amen. 
There are different kinds and types of uh, suffering. There's physical suffering, which includes pain, sickness, injury, physical abuse that's inflicted by others. There can be mental suffering, which includes, but not limited to, fears, anxiety, loneliness, depression, uh, and sometimes mental abuse from others. There can be emotional types of suffering when you have been hurt by others, when you've faced rejection, when you are overwhelmed with guilt. There's even what I would suggest is uh, a sociological suffering where there is injustice, there is bias, there is racism, there is a sense of being used or even overlooked by those who should show concern. There can be financial suffering. We use the, even the terminology uh, financial hardship sometimes when people come into uh, desperate times. Sometimes we even use the phrase hard times to refer to that which is difficult financially. Um, you know, it's interesting that financial hardship can even be having too much. You say, oh, I'd love to have that problem. <laughs> but sometimes when you have too much, then you're worried. You're worried of losing it or it evaporating and disappearing, or you're worried about who's going to get it once you're gone and how it's going to be used. Add to that that there is also spiritual suffering that takes place. And sometimes we experience that, or at least think in these terms, when we have the notion that God is silent, that He's aloof, that He's indifferent or unmoved, by what we are going through. Or worse, that someone would say that God is responsible for all of it and is punishing me or others for my sins and that He inflicts and causes it all and somehow takes a, a delight in seeing us squirm and suffer. There's suffering that comes about that is part of this natural world. There are accidents, there are storms, there are National, national disasters and natural disasters. Uh, some that come about through nature and others that are man-made. But you know, addressing the subject as believers in Jesus Christ can add a layer of difficulty because when you and I experience suffering, uh, we can at times call into question the goodness of God and his love for me and you. Our recent local church history and events, even in my own family life, have prompted me to take a closer look at what the Bible says on this subject of, of suffering. And I want to say at the outset of this uh, series of messages that, I'm, that I am by no means claiming to be an expert but I want to say that I am a fellow believer who has questions that I desire the light of Scripture to help me uh, to answer. Uh, the Bible, the Scriptures, for us as believing people are always the final author authority, are they not? But you know, even when we have the full counsel of God's Word, 
Not all of our questions are, are, are answered. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12 in the New Living Translation uh, puts it this way. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then, and I think Paul is referring to the future day in glory, I will know everything completely just as God knows me completely. But this begs the question in this uh, subject. What is God's relationship uh, to suffering? Well, there are some wrong conclusions that, that people make. Maybe you've made some of these yourself. So here are the answers that some people offer when, they sit, when the question is asked, what is God's relationship to suffering? Well, first of all, someone may say, God is good, but powerless to do anything. So it's at least in part true. All of these have that. Secondly, someone may conclude that God is all-powerful, but he's not good. And why is he not good? Because he doesn't act to remedy the situation, to intervene, to, to do something. On the heels of that, uh, someone may conclude that God is neither good nor all-powerful, thus he's but a bystander who sees the plight of man much like you and I would observe an, a an accident that happens and is indifferent. Or maybe the conclusion is that there is this, this undefined sort of fate that sort of uh, governs all things. And it's impersonal. And thus God is sort of impersonal. This, it's fate. It just it has to happen. On the other extreme may be, and I've alluded to this already, that God is the direct cause of all suffering and takes delight in seeing individuals suffer, that this is somehow punishment at the hands of an angry God. But you know, there are problems with each of these statements because the Bible teaches us otherwise. And I would suggest to you that the biblical and the correct understanding is this concerning God, that God is always good. God is all-powerful. He is also everywhere present. God is all-knowing. He is loving. He is merciful. He is perfect. He is just. He is holy. He is true. He is kind. He hears and answers prayer. God heals. He mends. He makes us whole. He is interested and concerned about every detail in my life and yours, right down to the number of hairs that are on your head. Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31. God is always good and He is all-powerful. God is also absolutely sovereign over all things. We're going to be looking at that in a little bit more detail in a 
in a, a future message. But God in His sovereignty says to you and to me and to all who will hear that absolute this truth is this, that absolutely nothing escapes His hands. God is not somehow taken by surprise when the accident happens or the suffering begins in your life or mine. Do we have Scripture, though, to, to back that up? Well, let's look at a few verses that, that affirm to us and reveal to us and, and teach us and say to you and me that we need to believe that God is indeed always good. Look with me, if you would, at Psalm 145. Psalm 145. And here is a Psalm of, of David. And notice the, 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 the character and the, the nature of God that he is highlighting for us, beginning at verse 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Can you affirm that in your life? With an amen, that you believe in your heart, in the depth of your soul, that God is indeed good. One of the ways that, that David at least highlighted it in part for us is at verse 15, how the goodness of God is seen. Look with me at verse 15 of this same psalm. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire, desires of every living thing. You see, God provides. Has He provided for you in your life? It's an indication of the goodness of God towards you. And not just believing people. He is good and compassionate to all. And He provides. and He is gracious in that way. Look with me at... Uh, Verse 17, because David continues in, in, in extolling the attributes of God. And it's a reminder that, that God is not only good at all times and in every way, but look at verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all His ways. That's another reality that we need to affirm in our lives. And loving towards all He has made. So the Lord is righteous in what he does. So when you and I experience something that is difficult, that is hard, that is trying, that is testing, that is a time of suffering, we can be confident that God is good in that and to us, but he is also righteous in whatever way he chooses to respond to that particular need and is at work in that circumstance in your life and in mine. But you notice this also, and this should comfort us. Look at verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. The Lord is near. He is present. He is with you. I don't know if, if you've experienced this, and you probably have if, if you've been a believer for any length of time, that when you're going through a difficulty, there that there's a, a sense of the presence of God 
maybe that you haven't experienced in other contexts. Even in worship, even when you are joyful, there's something about the nearness of God. And David even says in another place in the Psalms, the nearness of my God is my good. He's near, he's, he's with us. Look at verse 20. He's not just aware and with us, but look at verse 20. He says, the Lord watches all over all who love him. But all the wicked he will destroy. See, when God's present with us, he's not just an observer. He's there to be at work in your life and in mine and in those circumstances. I thought of an example way back in the book of Exodus that happened centuries before what David penned. You'll recall that in Exodus chapter 2, the setting is the Israelites had been in Egypt for almost uh, 400 years, and uh, they were oppressed as, as slaves. It was a hardship. It was a difficulty. They were, they were oppressed. They were, they were under the burdens and under the thumb of the Egyptians. And notice what we're told here in, in verse 23 of Exodus 2. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. Now, did God turn a, a deaf ear? Was he sort of aloof? Did he just not respond? No, it says, verse 24, God heard the groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now, if that's all we were told, we would maybe conclude that, well, he's aware, he knows, he's concerned, but then again, he didn't do anything about it. But look with me, if you would, at chapter 3, because God had a plan and a purpose in this. He raises up a man by the name of Moses, whom he would use to be the point man, the deliverer, if you would, of these who were in bondage and in this suffering and look what verse 7 of chapter 3 says. The Lord said to, to, to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the land and the home of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So go now, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And what I want you to see here, that God was not only near, he was not only aware, but God had a plan, and he had a plan all along. It's kind of interesting that centuries later, David would write in Psalm 22 these words. Psalm 22, and look with me at verse 23. 
You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. And it's kind of interesting that in the context of of those words, God is not unconcerned or aloof or distant, but he is moved by the suffering of his people and he acts to bring deliverance on their behalf. He listens to our cry for help and he does indeed help. The interesting thing is that Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm which speaks of the suffering uh, of the Messiah. And whereas in Exodus, God had a plan to bring out his people through his chosen man, Moses, one greater than Moses would come and bring deliverance not only from physical oppression and suffering, but also from the effects and the impact of sin on our lives. And we read when we come to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, these words, Hebrews chapter 4, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Why why would there need to be an exhortation to hold on to our faith in Jesus? Because there are things that would come against that faith that would try to shake it, including our difficulties and our suffering. And look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. Therefore, he says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You see, God is good. God is present with you. God is sovereign. God is concerned and God has a plan and God hears you in your suffering and he responds. So this addresses, if you would, in part... God and his response uh, in the midst of our suffering. And we will explore that certainly in more detail in the weeks to come as to God's purpose uh, in the things that we face and the trials in this life. But you see, God has a purpose. There is a purpose and he has a plan for you individually, for the body of Christ, the church as a whole for this world. And everything that is happening in this world and in your individual life is working together for his ultimate purpose. And Romans 8, 28 says, for those who love God, it is for our good and ultimately for his glory. So as I said, this addresses God's response in part Uh, and his actions, but still it it doesn't answer the question, why is there suffering? So to answer that, we we have to go back in our Bibles to where it all began. And I invite you to turn, please, to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, in fact. Why is there suffering? God has a a remedy and a plan for it, but where did it all begin? Well, you will recall that 
God is the originator, the creator, the author of all things, and he's the one that created the world, the universe, Adam and Eve, humanity, you and me. He's the creator. In fact, chapter 1, verse 1 tells us where everything, at least as far as we know, began. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know, when God created all these things, and Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote out the details of, of how that unfolded in the creative work of God, Interestingly, he says in 1.15, and God saw what he had made, uh, and it was good. In fact, when he had completed his work, making male and female in his own image, verse 31 of chapter 1 says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Everything he made was good. It was perfect. And Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with God. They had a perfect relationship with one another. They had a perfect relationship with their environment. They had all that they needed. God, God was their, 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 their praise. They were living in the world that God had made for them which was complete and perfect in every way. But lo and behold, we know, as the Bible tells us, chapter 3 is the next event that happened. After the creation, then there was the temptation. And enter Satan, this spirit being that's described for us later in Scripture. And in this context, he took the form of a serpent and, and questioned God. You say, well, where did he question God? Well, the first question that was ever posed was this. Did God really say? Isn't it interesting that, that, that even in our lives, the things that we face, be they good or bad, sometimes can, can cause us to question God. So we know, uh, you're all students of the word, and you know that Adam and Eve disobeyed the one command God gave. And God said, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. See, death was not part of God's original creation. But it was a penalty for disobedience and, and unbelief and, and sinning, which means missing the mark, not measuring up, not keeping God's law perfectly. And Adam and Eve sinned. They took of that fruit, whatever it was, whether it was an apple or a peach or a banana, we don't know. <laughs> there was a commercial years ago that, that there was apple juice called, I think, Adam and Eve apple juice. And it were two little children sitting there, probably three or four years old. And the little girl says to the little boy in the high chairs, want some apple juice? And it was almost as if it was a, uh, a replaying of what was happening in the garden. Whatever that fruit was, they disobeyed. The point is not the fruit. The point is their heart, which was disobedient to God. 
And sin entered the world. And as a result of sin and their nature then becoming fallen and their relationship with God becoming broken, now Adam and Eve and then all of their descendants afterwards from our first parents would have that fallenness. And would also come under the consequence of sin, which was suffering. Notice if you would with me for a moment, Genesis chapter uh, 3 and verse 14. God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Whatever form that serpent was prior to this, because Satan had uh, taken a hold of that and used that, the, the serpent was cursed. And beyond just the, the imagery there, there was a curse placed upon Satan, that spirit being that was fallen. And here you have in this context a curse that comes upon the world. But notice this. See, verse 15, the first gospel, the proto-evangelium is what we call it in theology. Already, God was at work with a plan to remedy what became broken. Not that he didn't have a plan before this. It wasn't like he was scrambling to try and figure that out. Scripture would indicate before he even spoke a, a word of anything into existence, he had a purpose and a plan. Because he's God. And notice what this, God says, there would be a, a, a remedy for this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is a first reference to a Messiah, to the Christ, to Jesus who would come and crush Satan's head and remedy the problem of sin in this world. But you see, the world is, is broken. It's fallen. And notice what God says. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. One of the reminders of, of, of the disobedience that took place was that women, who are the only ones that can bear children, by the way, would have pain in that experience as a reminder of living in a fallen world. But Adam wasn't off the hook. It wasn't like, I know they tried to pass the buck and pass the blame. And Well, you know, if it weren't for that serpent, well, if it weren't for that woman, if it weren't for my wife, you know, we all, we all try to, to, to do that, don't we? <laughs> try to get ourselves off the hook. But notice what it says here. To Adam, he says, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you that you must not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and to the dust you will return. And life became difficult. Life became hard. Life became a toil. And why was that? It was because sin entered the world. So we sometimes look at our world and we say, why doesn't God do something about the suffering that's in the world when we don't realize that the suffering that is a part of this world is really our own fault as sinful human beings? 
But you see, God remedied that in that he provided a savior in Jesus Christ who who changes our heart, who gives us a new nature, who gives us a capacity to live for God like we couldn't do on our own and forgives our sins and makes us right with himself both now and for eternity. But you, say, but you say to yourself, well, wait a minute, doesn't that mean that everything should be perfect? Well, we haven't gotten there yet. We still live in a fallen world, and suffering exists because we live in a fallen, cursed world. So when you and I face it, we're just under that curse that has not yet fully been removed. Romans 8 talks about all creation groaning and awaiting for that day where where the full redemption that is in Jesus Christ will be realized because even creation will be liberated from that. In the kingdom to come, when you plant a rose, there will no longer be thorns to prick your finger when you go to pick them. See, the, the thorns are a reminder of the curse. And isn't it interesting that Jesus, when he was dying for our sins and being mocked, they put on his head the crown of thorns. He wore our curse when he was on that cross so that we could be made right with God. So what are we to do? Uh, uh, this, this message this morning was really just a basic reminder of some things. But how do we respond Um, when we face difficulties and trials. Well, I I would hope that as believing people, we respond not by turning away from God, but all the more to Him. That just as we need Him to, to save our souls from judgment and eternal death we need him in our daily living and in the burdens that we face and that we bear so if you're suffering and we all are probably no doubt on some level i would exhort you and encourage you to turn to god in christ cling to him even with all your questions, your doubts, your fears, and ask him for help, his help, the help that he can only bring. And remember, God is always good. God is all-powerful. God cares. And God has a plan and a purpose. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, may you seal this word to our hearts this morning. Certainly not an easy subject, but yet one that your word does address for us. And Lord, in these days, as we look to you and your word for help, for answers, and we look specifically beyond even the direction of your word to you, we pray that our faith would be strengthened. That in the midst of our trials, we would not lose heart 
but that you, O Lord, would come to each of us with your everlasting arms and uphold us and strengthen us and teach us and mold us and fashion us even through these things that come our way that are hard. And we pray that the result would be, Lord, that we might know you better. That we would grow in Christ-likeness. That we would be able to sympathize with others. That we would be more useful as instruments in your hands. And all the other things, Lord, that, that you teach us in the midst of our suffering. To that end, Father, we surrender once again to you. Teach us your ways and help us all the more to trust Christ. And Father, we will give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.